Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would breathe sort of new life into this very old story. I pray for those of us that have read it many times that tonight will be a night where we meet with Jesus powerfully, where as we look at uh, your son Jesus in the Bible, that he would stand out from the pages of Scripture and we'd be drawn to him and we'd yearn to be more like him. And we pray this in your powerful son's name. Amen. Well, many of you know that during my um, zealous younger days, uh, when I was about 19 years old, I decided to spend about three months or so working as an apprentice carpenter just outside Bethlehem. And I was absolutely rubbish at that job. But the thing that stood out to me in my time in the West Bank was um, it was a place full of suffering. It was a place where uh, Bet Jala was a Christian town, which meant that uh, the uh, the locals there not only were persecuted by the Jewish army, but also by their Muslim neighbors. It was a tough place to live. But as I entered the town with my host, I was welcomed in with open arms. I can remember it was very hard just to get through uh, the the town because people were rushing out from their homes and trying to invite us in for food and for drink. And really stuck out to me, stood out to me as um, an incredible gesture of acceptance from a people who were harshly oppressed. Some of you may have been on the receiving end of hospitality like that, that has blown you away. And I guess that lies right at the heart of what we're trying to do in this series. Because we looked at last week the power of meals and eating as a very tangible demonstration of love and acceptance, of bringing people in and uh, showing them that you love them and that you want to be with them. And we learned last week that Jesus was a bit of a master of this. The Gospel is Luke is full of stories of him eating and feasting with certain sorts of people. And who he ate with and how he ate uh, says everything about his mission and his purpose and his drive and what he was on earth to do. And we looked last week at the fact that that provokes us to also be very revolutionary in the way that we eat as to who we have uh, round our kitchen tables, what we do in our small groups called mission groups, who we eat with and how we eat. And I guess that is the purpose of this series called Meals with Jesus. We want to provoke you guys. We want to get you thinking about how you eat and who you eat with. And last week you can catch up on the podcast if you missed it, but we learned quite a lot about grace and mission. This week, well, we're going to look at this meal and the way in which Jesus reveals three very, very important things. Here are the three things. This is where we're going tonight. He wants to say something about the fact that he's king. He wants to be really clear and say that we are not king. But sadly, he will also announce that the king will die as he feeds these 5,000 people. So let's dive straight in. Number one, he wants to use this meal to talk about the fact that he is king. How do we know that? How do we know that this is the point of the meal? Not something I've just made up as a good sermon point. Well, I want you to see that the story is actually bookmarked with this question. At the start of the text and then at the end of the text, and there is actually an answer in the end. 
Look at verse 7 with me. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So Herod asked, who is this guy? Who really is Jesus? And he uses, he thinks he could be three people. He says, is he Elijah? Is he a prophet of old? Or is he John the Baptist come back to life? And then you jump all the way. So the feeding of 5,000 happens. Then you jump all the way to the end. And you have the same question. You have the same options, but with an answer this time. Verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? There's the question. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. Those three options again. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. See, this meal is a setup for Jesus to reveal who he truly is, and that he is the Christ. The answer, the Christ of God isn't Jesus's surname. He's not Jesus Christ as in he's Mr. Christ to you if you don't know him very well. That's not his name. Rather, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And for the Jewish people, they used to anoint their kings with oil and they were waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one to come, who would lead their people into freedom. And so this meal helps Peter answer this question correctly. So our question has got to be, how does he come to that knowledge? How does he get the answer right? What clues does Jesus put into this meal to help? Well, first up, you've got to notice that there's a miraculous provision of food in the wilderness, which would send loads of bells ringing for the Jewish people about another time in their history where God provided for them in the wilderness as they escaped slavery in Egypt in the time of Moses. And you can find that in Exodus 16. So there's two million people in the desert, they have nothing to eat and they cry out to God and God provides for them by sending manna. And Moses not only leads them through that journey, but in Deuteronomy 18 says that one like himself, one like Moses would come to lead the people. So here we have Luke 9, feeding of the 5,000 people again are in the wilderness, they're in a desolate place without food and Jesus provides food for them. Yes, Jesus is the new and mightier Moses, leading people in what will be a new exodus, out of slavery, freedom from sin. But secondly, I want you to notice that he's also the new and mightier Elijah, as this meal would have also reminded the Jewish people of an incident that involved Elisha, who was actually Elijah's successor, armed with his cloak and anointing. You find this story in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's fascinating. It says this, A man came from Baal Shalazar, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. So you've got bread and you've got grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a 100 men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Sounds very familiar to us. Only a few loaves of bread, too many people, 
the disciples being asked to hand out the food and then God multiplying it so abundantly that there is food left over. Yes, Elisha is like the new Elijah, but Jesus really is the mighty new Elijah who's on the scene. And third, is he a new John the Baptist? Well, some of you may know John the Baptist was a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for a king who was to come. Jesus is this voice in the wilderness, not just announcing a king was coming, but demonstrating in the here and now that God in the flesh had come. And that it wasn't going to be a kingdom marked by fasting, but rather a kingdom marked by feasting and provision and abundance. And so wasn't he, Jesus wasn't just another voice, but rather he was the true and mighty new John the Baptist. And so those clues in this meal mean when Peter is asked by Jesus, who do you think I am? He just joined the dots and realized, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the king that we have waited for. I mean, it's good to know that that journey that Peter makes is a journey all of us need to make at some point in our lives. Many of us have done it already. But I guess I just wanted to take a moment to encourage you, if you are on a bit of a journey of discovery, a bit like Peter was, and you're asking the same questions, who is Jesus? And perhaps you're thinking, is he a prophet? Is he someone that was a great teacher? Is he a great moral example? Or is he potentially the king? And if he is the king, what are the consequences for my life? I just want to say, well done for being courageous if you're on that journey. It takes a lot of courage to ask those sort of questions because it's a very humbling question. It's humbling because you're asking, am I not king of my life, but is someone else? And we would encourage you to take your time, do your work, but we hope stories like this are like bright neon signs to you that Jesus is the long way to king. So number one, he's the king. The second way Jesus provocatively uses this meal is to say something about us, his followers, which is number two, we are not king. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, we are not king. Okay, why don't you turn to the other person on the other side of you, point this time and say, you are not king. Yeah, nicely done. Do you know what? The parents loved doing that to their kids this morning. It was, it was a, a beautiful moment. So look at the story. Look at the story here. Look at the story here. Large crowds are gathered. They were listening to Jesus, but now it's tea time. Verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 come to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. So it's good to note here, the disciples were actually acting in love. They get so much wrong in the Gospels, but their motivation is really good. They want to care for these people. They realize that it's getting dark, that there's no food for them here. There's nowhere to stay. And so they need to go safely out to find food and lodgings. However, the intention was right, but the plan was wrong. That's not what Jesus wanted to do. And it's worth noticing that sometimes the right plan or the right thing to do, or the common sense thing to do, or what seems to be the safe option, isn't necessarily the right thing to do. They didn't account for something miraculous. They didn't imagine that God could do something amazing. And that is so challenging for us, and especially if you're here today 
and you like fixing things. You like just problems where you can sort of, I don't know, find solutions. Perhaps you're someone that likes depending on yourselves. You're, 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 you're someone that really doesn't like to ask for any help. And in Yorkshire, that's what men are really known for, is being able to manage and cope by ourselves. I want to ask you, maybe like the disciples, Jesus wants you to stop trying to fix stuff yourselves, but rather look at the problems in your life as an opportunity for him to work a miracle. You see, Jesus is just about to make a, a, an incredible point to us. Verse 13, he replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy for all this crowd. And there's about 5,000 men there. What's going on here? Well, two words that summarize what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples. Responsibility and inability. Responsibility and inability. Jesus wants to use his disciples, so he gives them responsibility to minister. But he also, at the same time, wants them to recognize that they have a complete inability to change things by themselves. There's responsibility, but at the same time, an inability. We are not king. He is. I don't know if you've ever tried to make a meal for a lot of people, perhaps 10 people, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 people, something like that. I, if you're trained, you might be able to do that. But for someone like me, that, it would be a nightmare. I mean, it would be a nightmare. Just try, The logistics of dietary requirements and having enough oven space and all that sort of stuff. Imagine for these disciples, they're being asked by Jesus to feed these 5,000 men, maybe 10, 15,000 people. And he says, not only do I want you to make that happen, but I'm not going to give you any food to do it with. I mean, that is the scale of the problem for, in the disciples' mind. The point, Jesus wants to understand their complete inability and his ability. They simply cannot do it themselves. And I love, I absolutely love how the whole story ends in terms of this meal. You see, I don't know if the disciples ever thought this, but I know I would be thinking this if I was the disciple given the task of feeding that many people with just a few loaves and fishes. I'd be thinking I will get a very sharp knife and I will cut that fish up as, as thinly as it will possibly go. You know, do the old choppy, 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 and then give everyone just like the smallest little sliver. That's what I'd be thinking. Jesus is by on another planet. Verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is fantastic. One whole basketful of leftovers for every disciple who trusted in their own ability to fix this problem rather than going to God. You know, imagine those baskets just lying there in the wilderness, just, you know, on the ground, filled with leftovers, and the disciples, perhaps Jesus saying, why don't you just grab one of those, and then leave it with these baskets. You know, God, when we let him, I mean, it's a remarkable thing to say, when we let him, God loves to provide abundantly for us. I mean, that's his heart, that's his sort of disposition towards us. He's not trying to be stingy, he's not withholding, but he looks to us and is waiting for us to ask. The Bible says some of us don't have because we don't ask. Now, is that you tonight? Is there an opportunity for God to abundantly provide whatever the need is, whatever the miracle you're looking for, but you just 
just haven't gone to him. This is a lesson in responsibility and inability. It's for you and for me. Because we have been given responsibility to build the church, to make disciples, share the gospel, go to the nations, to love the poor, to pray for the sick, to be become holy as God is holy. But we will only, only come close to stepping into that if we as a church are hungry and thirsty for God to do it, not us. This is a brilliant time of year to be looking at this question. Because for some of you, you've made New Year's resolutions. Some of you have decided, I'm going to read my Bible in a year. I'm going to learn one memory verse till the summer this year. I'm get, you know, you've, you've, you've put yourself out there. So, come on, this is a fresh start. I am going to go for it this year. I've never read through my Bible. I always get stuck on Leviticus. I am going to nail that thing this year. And I want to tell you, if that is your attitude, that you're going to nail it and God's not really involved, you will fail. And if some of you are like super, super disciplined and you manage to do it, you will also fail. Because that's not the way God wants to work in your life. He wants you to take responsibility, but also realise you have a complete inability on your own to do stuff. Why does he do it like that? Well, if we're reliant on him, if we're dependent on him, then he gets the glory at the end of the day, not us. It's the way he loves to work. 1 Peter 4, verse 11, describes the mystery of becoming more Christ-like and that whole deal of we live our lives in the strength of another. 1 Peter 4, verse 11, says this, If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves... He should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for every and Amen. So what's it saying? It's saying we should serve. We should take responsibility. We should take our loaves and fishes and present them to God, however small our efforts may feel. But we take responsibility and we serve, but God then supplies the means. He supplies the power and the grace so that he is glorified, not us. So listen, if you have something in your life going on right now that you know you need to fix or you need to change your mind on or make a decision about or walk into or step into, something needs to happen. Step one, what's Jesus saying? He's saying take responsibility. And for some of you, that's the issue. It's just like you live a life not taking responsibility. First step is to say, we're going to do something about this. Something's going to change. But it must not end there. Your next decision is to say, God, I can't do this. I'm taking responsibility, but I cannot do this. Personally, for me, this is how it works, because there's stuff in my life that I look at and I think, I don't, I, I cannot do this, God. Yeah, I know it's the right decision, I cannot do it. So here's what my prayers look like. Early in the morning, I get up, before any of my household are up, and I get time with the Lord. And in that time, I will pray something like this. I will lay my day before the Lord in prayer. I will just say, here's what's going on. And we'll have a conversation about the things that stand out for me as particularly difficult or where I particularly need his help. Then I will go to the Bible because my mind is usually all over the shop in the morning and I just desperately want to go back into bed where it's nice and warm and cosy. And I will take verses like 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No. I worked harder, or I took responsibility more than any, all of them, yet not I, 
but the grace of God that was with me. So I remind myself of my need. I remind myself of my lack of ability. And then I remind myself of God's ability and love and grace and power. And what's going on there is this. I'm connecting with the fact that I can't do it. I'm going through scripture to see the fact that God can do it. And then what's joining those two things is faith. Faith is appearing. As I'm reading the word of God, as I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to change me, faith starts to come. And I start to trust that God really can make a difference. And as you actively put your faith in him to meet your needs, then, wow, if God is in this, then perhaps he will actually do better than I would if I was left on my own. Perhaps he may do even more than I ask or imagine in the situation. Perhaps a miracle might happen. Perhaps something unexpected, supernatural may happen if I ask God into my life to help me in this point of need. Perhaps. And that's faith. It's saying, God, I trust you. I do not trust myself. William Carey sums it up nicely. Great missionary to India. He said, expect great things from God. That's the faith. That's God. I can't do it. You can. Attempt great things from God. Take responsibility. Do something. That blend, responsibility and inability, is a glorious thing. And two things. Number one, I want you to ask yourself tonight, are you too proud to ask for help? Are you too proud? Is your like, Perhaps you haven't hit rock bottom where you connect with the fact that you can't do it. Perhaps you're halfway there and you're still trying to make it happen yourself. Are you too proud to stop and turn to God? And secondly, let me ask you this. Are you too safe to have to ask for help? So for some of you here tonight, the, the issue is that you've not, you've not really got a problem going to God and saying, help me. It's just there's nothing in your life that you've taken a risk about. There's, there's no miracles needed. You're playing it completely safe. Just life is ticking by. So number one, he's king. Number two, we are not king. Let's finish with this. Number three, the king will sadly die. Third way Jesus uses this meal provocatively is, declare, is to declare that the king will die. You see, you might not have noticed, but this is the first communion meal that Jesus has with his disciples. Look at verse 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. What Luke is doing here is he's effectively describing the Last Supper early. Because the Last Supper is recorded in Luke 22, verse 19. Look at the language. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you, do this in remembrance of me. Exactly the same words in the same order. Taking, thanking, breaking and giving. You see, in the first meal, he's taking the bread and breaking it to provide for his people. In the second meal, he's taking his body and announcing it will be broken and then given to people as a sacrifice to a hungry people who cannot feed themselves. Look at what he says in John 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. He's saying, I'm not lying. It's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread. 
that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. This meal is ultimately an announcement of the king's arrival, but also the king's death, that ultimately gives life to all that repent and believe in him. Through his death on the cross, the judgment that we deserve because of our sin and selfishness falls on the shoulders of Jesus. And as we trust him for the work that he achieves at the cross, as we give our lives to him, then we get invited to a feast where he is the host that will last for eternity. So listen, this meal isn't like a funeral wake, but rather it's simply a way of Jesus revealing his love and his means of changing the world. He, he's taking a broken fish and broken bread and saying they are symbolic of what will happen to my body. A life laid down. And he does this for you and me. You see, when I read this meal, what I see is a man who knows that God the Father will pour out his love in an incredible way by sending his son to the cross, by breaking his son. I wonder as Jesus takes the food and lifts it to heaven and gives thanks, that he, if you like, can see that it, it is his body that will be taken and broken and then distributed, being offered for the sins of the world, taking, thanking, breaking and giving. Tonight, if you need reassurance that God really cares for you, that God's bothered about your life, that God genuinely wants to know you, then you need to look at this meal. Because this meal is like a sign that something is about to happen in the life of Jesus, which is so precious and so wonderful. It will be the demonstration, the, the greatest demonstration in all of history of the love the Father has for his sons and daughters. You know, in life, we, uh, if you're a Christian here tonight, um, we believe that God loves us, and that it's an incredible truth. But what happens is this. It's like... I don't know, you could imagine it like a, a waterfall from heaven, a waterfall that is continually flowing. Niagara Falls like heavy, thick love flowing from heaven that's constant, that keeps on flowing consistently. And that is the love of God. And there are moments in our life where we are under that waterfall, getting drenched in the love of God. We're aware of it. It's like seeping in to every pore and every bit of our lives that feel dry and dusty, that need like a fresh touch of the love of God. But what happens is this. We often step out from being under that waterfall. And I know in my life, like even just during the day, many times I feel like I just step out and I suddenly doubt what it's like being in that waterfall. Or I forget the waterfall's there. Or I start to look at, oh, is there some other sources of love that I could go to? This meal says, step under the waterfall. God gives everything to you. He gives what's most precious to him, to you. And some of you tonight, it, it's an opportunity to remind yourselves that you're truly loved, truly accepted by God. And that the life of a Christian is to live satisfied by this waterfall of the Father's love. And perhaps for some of you, you've forgotten it's there.
And this meal is a huge reminder. So three things. Another great meal. Three things Jesus tells us. Number one, he's the king. Number two, we are not king. And number three, the king will die. And in dying, he will reveal the greatness of the Father's love for us as children. Can you just close your eyes? We can have the hand up and be done. Why don't you just stand to your feet while you pray? My hope is we'll have some time to pray for one another. My hope is God will start speaking to some of you with some things to share for the rest of us. We've got some time now just to worship God in song. But we really do want to get time to minister to each other and give time for the Holy Spirit to speak to us, empower us, change us, reveal the love of God to us. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that that's your heart tonight, that's your desire is to reveal your son Jesus to us afresh. Thank you, Lord, that you are king. And uh, I pray for anyone that's on that journey of faith that they would see you very clearly tonight. Thank you, Lord, that because you're king, it means we're not. And for many of us, Lord, we just want to repent from self-sufficiency, want to repent from just trying to do life independently of you. We're so sorry where we just don't have faith for that miraculous breakthrough. It's not even a consideration. And we ask God, let us see you clearly again tonight. Let faith arise. And for many of us, Lord, we want to know your love tonight. We want to just take responsibility by stepping under that waterfall and trusting that you will pour out your love into our hearts. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, on us tonight. Come and do all that you need to do in us, your people. We pray this in your very powerful name. Amen.